0: Talk about what it means, why this matters, and how it relates to our lives today. So, if you have a Bible, if you could turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. If you're using a Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 772. And when you found that, would you stand together we'll read this passage together? Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Jump over across the page if you're using the Pew Bible to Acts 4, beginning at verse 32. Acts 4:32. let's continue for a few verses. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us again quickly and commit now, this time as well, to him. Oh, Lord God, we come now to your word with expectant hearts, believing that you've got something to say to us this morning. You've got something that you want to work in each of us individually as well as as a church. And I pray that you would accomplish that purpose for which you've sent out your word. You tell us that when you send out your word, it will accomplish what it's been sent out for. It doesn't return void to you. Oh God, accomplish that thing in each one of us just in the way that you planned this morning. And so I always ask, oh God, move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth. Amen. Well, we got just two weeks left now in this series which have entitled Purpose. Purpose. Why are we here? Where we've been going through our purpose statement, our why as a church, which is... Hope you're not bored of me saying this so much now. Which is that we exist. The whole reason that we're here as a church is to see our city and our world renewed by demonstrating and declaring the transforming power of the gospel. I felt it was really important that that we go back Dig into this really foundation level statement as a church, particularly just having come through a, a difficult past year, a year full of, of transition, a year full of all kinds of confusion, a year of loss. In sports, uh, when a team has been struggling, what do we say? We say They say, oh, we've got to get back to the basics. We'll get back to doing passing, shooting, whatever it is that, that started us out well, we need to get back to those things in order to refocus, to, to reset everything, to get back on track. I think we could safely say that in this past year, we've, we've struggled as a team. We've struggled as a team. I don't think we need to be afraid to say that out loud. It's, it's true. It's, it's real. And, and if we aren't honest about where we're starting from, we're never going to get to where it is that we say we want to get to as a church, to see our city and world renewed. So, in order to reset all of us. In order to refocus us and to get us back onto what, why are we here. What's our purpose as a church? What better place to begin than to go through this purpose statement. To dig into it and to renew all of our commitment to it. So, so far we've talked about what purpose is. We've looked at the transforming power of the gospel. And then last Sunday we talked about renewal. These last two Sundays now, I want us to zero in on those two things. Declaring... And then demonstrating the transforming power of the gospel. I mean, talking about getting back to basics. These are the two actions in our purpose statement. These are the two things we do in order to see that renewal take place. So today, I want to talk about demonstrating the gospel. Demonstrating the gospel. Now, in a sense, even in the English language, that's kind of an awkward way to say that. I mean, maybe we'd say, okay, I I get what it could be to declare the gospel, But what does it mean to demonstrate the gospel? How how do you declare a message? How do you demonstrate a message? That seems really awkward. I mean, that's like somebody saying, no, 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 I don't want you to sing the Canadian National Anthem. I want you to demonstrate it. We'd probably look at them like, well, I'm sorry, do you want me to sign it? I mean, I don't know what what that even means. Or maybe you'd even want to ask, why is that even in our purpose statement? I mean, uh, aren't we just supposed to, as Christians, just tell people the message, get the message of the gospel out there? That's, that's our job. We, we sow the seed wherever it is, and, and we're not responsible for the growth. Isn't, isn't that all we're supposed to do? Well, I think the consistent message of the Bible and our passage here in particular today is no. Actually, we are to speak the message of the gospel both in our words as well as our actions. We do it both ways. If you want to think about it this way, uh, how many of you uh, like to go to home and garden shows? Okay, we've got a couple here. If you've even been to a home and garden show, what do they have there? You walk around, it's BC Place, it's out at the PNE, maybe out in Abbotsford. There's all these demonstration booths all around, and you got everyone with their different displays and they're they're showing you their product, they're showing you how it works. Look, look at how I mean, look at how I can cut through the tin can and how I can cut through a tomato that it's the same demonstrations all the time, you know, a guy's soaking up, look at how I can soap up with the chamois, whatever it is, they're showing you all the, the benefits, all the, the key features, everything about this. Imagine how, how lame a home show would be if it was just an empty floor and people standing on empty stages just, just talking about their product. Well, well, what it is is it's a knife, you see there's a handle, and then, uh, and then you, you cut things with it, and you'd be like, well, can't you just, can't you show me, show me how it works? No, 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 I just, I just tell you about it. It would be the lamest home show ever. Well, what, what we see with that, there's something very powerful and compelling when other senses are engaged and, and recruited in order to deliver a message. It helps to help, it, help us understand it better, to know it better, to be more excited about it, to see, feel, and, and touch something in order to just be told about it. Well, What I want to suggest to you is that the message of the gospel is no different. It's no different when it comes to declaring the message. The message alone is what transforms, yes, but in our transmission of that message, we should use all means possible in order to deliver it. Sometimes, and I'm going to say oftentimes, the soil of the heart can be tilled, can be broken up to the place where it's more able to receive the message when people can see first what it looks like lived out. Uh, someone who who said something like this famous uh, 17th century uh, mathematician, physicist, Christian philosopher, Blaise Pascal, he said it this way. He said, men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid it may be true. The cure for this is first to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, make it attractive, make good men wish it were true. Then, show that it is. Now, commenting on this, pastor and author Tim Keller says, "Pascal, he's not saying that we should, we should try to change the message of the gospel or change things in order to make it look better. We need to make the gospel look more attractive. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that we would live in such a way that we would speak about the gospel message in such a way that it's seen for how beautiful it is. It is a beautiful message. Do people see how beautiful it is? Do, do we live in such a way, do we present the gospel in such a way to our culture and the surrounding world that they see it, he says, as, as the thing, the means by which all the plot lines of life find their ultimate fulfillment and resolution, that people would see the gospel lived out and say, I, I don't even know what that's about, I don't even believe that, but man, if what you're saying is true, I sure would like it to be then they are perfectly primed in order to hear the gospel message and now receive it because they actually want it to be true. So what Pascal's getting at is that as we live out and demonstrate the effects of gospel transformation and renewal in our lives, we ready the heart to better receive the declared message. And I think all of us would say that we struggle many times. We struggle to know just how and when to declare that message to our friends, to our family that, that don't know it yet. We always want to know, okay, well, when's the right time? How should I know when to do that? I think what we're going to see today is that when we live out our lives, when we do what Pascal is saying, when we do what we see in our passage, demonstrating the transforming power, it actually makes the declaration much more natural much more obvious, and and I would say, in in a lot of times, much more readily received when they see it first lived out in your life. So, in order to help us see what this gospel demonstration looks like, I want to look at our passage this morning in just three ways. We'll talk about the motivation for demonstration, the content of demonstration, and then finally, the result of demonstration. Just those three things. Motivation, content, and result of demonstration. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to Acts 2? I'm going to be referring back to this, and I'd love you to follow along with me as we dig into this. So let's look first at the motivation for demonstration. The motivation for demonstration. Now we're going to get into what the early church actually did to demonstrate the gospel in a second. But first of all, I want to spend a minute talking about... What it was that motivated their efforts? What was the the driving force behind them demonstrating the gospel? Listen, in a culture that was disinterested at best and hostile at worst to the message of the gospel, which, if you didn't know, that's that's not dissimilar at all to the culture we live in today. The answer to that question of what motivated them was love was love. It was the very same love that we heard about the Apostle Paul having last week in our passage. This love that that compelled and constrained him to want to offer his whole life in service of this Jesus that had saved him, that he used to hate and persecute. Now we have love for all kinds of different things in our lives, don't we? Uh, From people to things, our kids, our wives, our favorite sports team, whatever it is. But love for Jesus is different. It's just it's different. It, 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 it's different because actually it, it satisfies us in a way that none of those other things can. It's a love and a pursuit that actually can bear the weight of our expectation because it can live up to its promises. And it's the only thing that can do that. That's exactly what we see going on with these men and women in our passage. Look at verse 42, first of all. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to this family life as a church. They're selling their possessions and goods in order to meet the needs of others. And they're daily meeting in the temple courts. Daily meeting, they're praising God with glad hearts. They're demonstrating something that's happened, that something's motivated them to do this. Now, the word devoted in verse 42 there is a Greek term, proskatereo. I'm not saying that probably right, but I don't know if any of you speak Greek anyway. But what that word means is to attach oneself to something, to, to, to be faithful to someone or something. Then fellowship, just below that, the Greek word koinonia, which means, yes, fellowship, a uh, uh, participation. It means, listen, the act of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate association or group, especially used of marriage and churches. Now, I'm not talking specifically right at this moment about church membership, but it's worth noting here that the use of the language here that he's talking about is describing a level of commitment that would have been on the same level as marriage. A deep level of commitment that these people had in the early church. So, yes, you know, if you look through your Bibles, you're not going to see the word church membership anywhere. You won't. And yet, what we're trying to actually recreate or recapture is a level of commitment in the early church that would have been understood by everyone there. They would have absolutely understood committing themselves to them to this body on the same level as committing to another person in marriage. So what had inspired them, what had so captivated all these people to engage in this public demonstration day after day was that each and every one of them had been transformed by the gospel. They'd been transformed by the gospel. That's what motivated them, and we know that because the context of this passage is immediately following something called Pentecost. Pentecost, if you didn't know or you haven't heard of this before, this is really one of the foundational starting points of the whole New Testament church. This is when the Holy Spirit is poured out on Jesus' disciples and and they turn from being these cowering, uh, afraid men hiding up in their apartment to out on the streets boldly declaring the gospel to anyone who will listen. This is uh, where we see, just before this, where Peter gives one of the most non-seeker-sensitive sermons in all of church history. He just says, yeah, Jesus was the Messiah, he was God, and you killed him. Sort of like, wow, okay, well, yeah, that's, that's true. It uh, doesn't give a great uh, deal of uh, bedside manner, but sure, that, that's, that's true. This is also where, amazingly, by the power of the Spirit, as Peter is giving his message, he's just talking normally in his own everyday language, and yet, Although there are cultures and languages all around hearing him, they hear it in their own language and dialect. It's an amazing miracle of the Holy Spirit as this happens. But then, understanding the message, everyone hearing what he's saying, as, as bold and as in their face as it is, rather than wanting to kill Peter, we read that everyone who hears this is cut to the heart. They are cut to the heart. They are shot by Cupid's arrow, if you will, and they are They say. If that's true, then what should we do? Tell us what to do. And Peter says, Repent and be baptized. And that very day, we read, over 3,000 people repent and are baptized into the church. 3,000 people. So these are the same people now in our passage who are demonstrating this gospel transformation. That's what's motivated them to act in these ways. So that's them. That's, That's these people in our passage 2000 years ago I want us to think now about ourselves here 2016 we've been transformed we say by that same very message we have that very same motivation that they have we've been transformed by it I wanna ask is this your experience is this our experience as a church Do we have the the same captivation? Are we so captivated by what God's done for us in Jesus that we are daily, unashamedly, just wanting to show that love to people in visible, tangible ways? Is that that how we live out our lives? Maybe you would hear me say that, and you'd say, yes. Yes, I do. I try to live my life every day just because I'm so overwhelmed by what God has done that He would save someone like me. I'm amazed, and I try to live that way every day. And if that's you... Praise God. Praise God for that. But I know in a room like this, for some of us, let's say maybe you became a Christian at a very young age. That's you, and that's my experience as well. It's hard to develop this really deep gratitude for our salvation because, you know what, at four, I didn't have a whole lot of great sins that I was repenting of. I knew I needed Jesus, and I wanted to pray the sinner's prayer, but I didn't have this deep sense of, man, look at all this stuff I've done. How could God save me? So we don't have that deep level of gratitude and we hope it develops over time. Or maybe others, maybe you do have that deep gratitude and understanding of your salvation, but the only time you ever express it is here on a Sunday morning or in your private times of worship, devotion. Wherever you're at this morning, what I want to encourage all of us to do as a church is to demonstrate and express our love for Jesus and what He's done in saving us in ways that people can see Every day, It can be the smallest act. Sometimes, like in that video, it's just an act of thankfulness. Expressing thankfulness for the daily blessings that we have. But living our lives with an attitude, all this that I have is from God. He's done everything for me. And then just doing that every day in our jobs, in our homes, in our communities, everywhere. Just doing it with the same freedom with which you'd show love that you have for someone else or something else. Your kids. We saw the way Samu is holding up his... His child, he's, he's happy, he's joyful, he's saying, look look at my, look at my son. Yes, we don't think that's weird. I, I have never played anything more than floor hockey in my life, and yet I have no problem walking around town with a Canucks jersey. No one's like, why is he wearing that? He doesn't play hockey. We, we, sh- we have no problem showing the things that we love in appropriate ways when we want to do it. I mean, I don't know if anyone's got Blue Jays stuff on right now, but whatever. We do it. We just... We, we, we sh- when we love something, when we're excited about it, we show it. I'm not suggesting we go out and get, you know, Lord's Gym t-shirts or whatever it is, but I'm saying in appropriate ways, let's demonstrate because we have the same motivation. Let's demonstrate what's happened to us. We've been transformed, we've been changed. I believe as we do that, we're going to see more renewal take place in our city and world because we'll be preparing hearts to receive our declared message. So that's the motivation for demonstration. Let's look now at the content of the demonstration. How did they they do it? How did they demonstrate the gospel? What does demonstrating the transforming power of the gospel look like? Well, we've said a few times throughout this series, big picture what that looks like is just living out the design for which you were created, which is to know God and to make Him known. We've been now uh, able to do that. We've been qualified now to do that as, as we've been renewed. Just living out that in our everyday lives. That's how big picture we demonstrate a a transformed, renewed reality to an as yet unrenewed world. But there's some specifics that we see here in our passage, which I want to just walk us through quickly. This is not an exhaustive list, so don't feel if you can't do these things specifically, but I think we can. First of all, verse 42, look there again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the first way. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching now we talked a minute ago about what that word devoted means but in saying that they devoted themselves they attached themselves to the apostles teaching what what luke is trying to show us there is that as they sat under the apostles preaching and teaching they didn't see going to that as just like going to see a ted talk where you just you know receive some interesting ideas hear some interesting things and oh isn't that nice no no what they did is they actually took the teaching and incorporated it into their lives they sat under it and devoted themselves into a way of saying, okay, if that's true about God, that means this needs to change. If this is true about what God's done for me, I need to, leave to live this way. And for you and I today, if you didn't know, every time you pick up this book, you are holding that very same teaching of the apostles and the prophets. You're holding it right now recorded for you in this book. So you got access to the very same thing that they had, When we study this teaching, when we dig into it, spend time in it, we are knowing God more. We know more God because this is how He's revealed Himself to us. And when we live our lives in accordance with what we've learned, we are making Him known to the world. We're living according to our purpose and demonstrating that renewed reality. Second thing we see. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now I realize that's an unfortunate wording because we happen to be part of a denomination called the fellowship. Uh, uh, this was not slipped in here by David Harita. This is, we said, the word fellowship means something different. It talks about this commitment. talks about this attaching and, and dedication, participation that's going on. One of the most recognizable ways that they would have devoted themselves to this fellowship, attached themselves, we see just above our passage in verse 41. Look there that those who accepted the message were baptized. They were baptized and then added into the number of the church. That's how they devoted themselves to this local church body. So the first thing to say, if you didn't know, baptism is a demonstration of the gospel. That's what it is. When we are baptized, we are demonstrating the way publicly in front of people that when we go under the water, we are dying to our sins with Christ and we are being raised up to a new life just as He was raised up. We're demonstrating externally what's already happened inside us. And the second thing to say is that baptism was here and as well as from this point on the primary way that they devoted themselves into this fellowship, It's the way they were added into that number, the local church, which is why most Christian churches today have baptism as a condition of membership. That's where this all began. Let's look at the third thing. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. Now, you quickly look at that, you think, oh, okay, so that means they ate meals together. Awesome, yeah, we do that. Uh, I think if you look more closely, most commentators agree that Breaking of bread is actually Luke's terminology that he uses throughout Luke's gospel as well as Acts for talking about the Lord's Supper, talking about communion. One way we see that is the way down in verse 46, if you look there, he actually separates the two things. He talks about the breaking of bread and eating together. So they're two separate things. He's saying these are not the same thing. And we know Luke uses this terminology as well because at the end of Luke's gospel, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, he hides himself from being recognized from these two men walking with him. He's telling them about who he was and showing how Jesus had to suffer and die from all the scriptures. They sit down to eat together and he says that when Jesus broke the bread, they, their eyes were open and they saw that it was him and he disappears as well. Another place we see this is that the breaking of bread was the standard beginning to all Passover celebration. They broke the bread and that's how they began it. And we learned in our Exodus series that Jesus had so beautifully recast, revisioned this Passover Supper to show Himself as the true and better Passover Lamb, sacrificed for our sins. So baptism. Baptism, that's a one-time demonstration of the gospel, taking of the Lord's Supper, communion. This is a continual, weekly demonstration that we do every week to remind us the sacrifice that was paid for us in order to accomplish our salvation. I mean, we say this every week when we take it, but Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So he's drawing a direct parallel there between a demonstration and a declaration. He's saying that's what you do when you take this supper. We're proclaiming the Lord's death. Fourthly, they devoted themselves to prayer. To prayer. Now, we don't think of it this way very much in our modern context, but for a first-century Jew who was very familiar with the sacrificial system, the temple system, this would have been an unheard of thing, to have direct access into the presence of God, to go behind that curtain into the Holy of Holies. You could never have done that, and they knew that. And yet in Jesus, in his death, when he gave up his spirit, and we read the temple of the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, God was saying, through Jesus, you now have direct access to me. It's an unbelievable uh, accomplishment of the gospel. So when we're praying, we're demonstrating a gospel reality that's now true because of what Jesus has done for us. There's others here, but one last one I'll point out to us is in verse 45. Look with me there. It says, They were selling their possessions and goods. They gave to everyone as he had need. Now, a lot of times people read this passage and that one we read further in chapter 4, and they say, oh, okay, so what is the Bible... Uh, uh, saying we should all be communists, or, or, or uh, some people feel that uh, communal living is what we're supposed to do as Christians. We're just supposed to, everyone pile their stuff into a pile, and it's just all ours, and we'll live all together in one big tent city. I don't, I don't think that's exactly what's going on here, uh, for a couple reasons. First of all, the, vol- the, the giving was voluntary. It was voluntary. It was not something required or mandated or, or, or enforced in any way. So that's what communism is. That's not what was happening here. Secondly, people continue to have homes. They they continue to have their own possessions that they're sometimes selling and giving, but they they maintain them. So it's not everything being put in a pool. Instead, I think the key to understanding what's going on here, as well as how this radical generosity demonstrates the gospel, we see in that second part that we read over in chapter 4. Look over there at verse 34. Chapter 4 and verse 34. Luke says there, There were no needy persons among them. And then he says the way that happened is people from time to time would sell homes and give the proceeds and they would distribute them as there was need. Now, what Luke is referring to when he says that is a direct reference actually back to what God said to his people when they were just about to enter into the promised land in Deuteronomy 15. He said, when you enter into this promised rest, this promised inheritance that I'm giving, you will have so much abundance You will have so much that I'm going to provide for you if you'll follow me, be faithful to the covenant, that there will be no needy persons among you. You will have enough to care for the needs of everyone around you. Now, the way that matters for us now today and the way that demonstrates the gospel is that, first of all, thinking of that reality points back. It points back to what God did for us in Jesus in giving up all the riches of heaven in order to deal with our poverty, We read in 1 Corinthians 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though He was rich, He became poor for us, so that by His poverty we might become rich. There are no needy persons in the family of God when it comes to spiritual riches. But this living this way also points ahead to a future, a true and better promised land where when Jesus comes again and sets up His kingdom here on earth, there will no longer be any need, no longer any hunger. And this is pointing ahead to that future gospel reality when we live this way now, when we seek to meet the needs of those all around us now. And with each of those demonstrations of the gospel's transforming power, others that they did, others that we'll do today in our own day and age, what they were doing was demonstrating just in that same way that Blaise Pascal was talking about. They were living out that transformed reality in front of people in such a way that, that they saw that. And first of all, they saw that's not contrary to reason. That looks actually pretty rational. And then over time, they're seeing, man, that's actually, that actually looks right. That looks actually really interesting. Their interest is piqued. Longings and desires are being stirred within them as they see this community of faith, this family of faith devoted to one another. They see this gospel transformation being lived out. That's stirring those longings within them. For you and I today, because God created us this way, He designed us to be relational beings. He designed us for community. Even though we live in this highly individualized age, where everything is about the individual and your needs. This is how uh, I want to live my life. Don't tell me anything different. This is how I want to identify myself. Don't tell me that I'm wrong. Even living in that same day and age, people are still desperate for this kind of community. When they see it lived out, they're desperate, and they're like, what is that? What, what's going on there? The way that they're living together and caring for one another, it stirs desire. It stirs, I think, a homesickness, for something they don't even know that they're missing. But again, people need to see it. They need to see that devoted community living in front of them or they're never going to be affected by it. It can't have any impact if we just demonstrated here on Sunday morning but then never any other times during the week. If they don't see it in, in the way that we act and treat each other at work. If they don't see the way that we act on our university campuses. They need to see it in order to be affected by it, in order to have those longings stirred. If you you see the early church here in verse 46 and 47, they had just the opposite idea. They're going, it says, into the temple courts. They're headed out to the places where they know they're most likely to be seen. And that's where they're demonstrating the community, and they're doing it every day in every opportunity they have. They're trying to live out a gospel reality that stirs the hearts of people so that they have opportunity to declare the message. And as they do this, as they live out this joyful, devoted church community life, we see now, let's look finally at the result of their demonstration. The result of their demonstration. I just see two results here quickly, but they actually kind of bleed into one. I'll point them out and then we'll just talk briefly about what they are. First of all, verse 43, look there. It says, Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders, The miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Now, I see that everyone, that word there, it's including the transformed people. But I think it's actually referring to everyone. Everyone who's seeing what's going on is filled with awe when they see what's going on here. Now, yes, there's miraculous things happening. People are being healed. Uh, People are being raised to life sometimes. But it's not just that. There's all kinds of things. They're seeing this transformed reality demonstrated, and they're overwhelmed by it. Like, what's going on there? I, I need to be a part of that. That's, 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 that's amazing. They're filled with awe at what's happening. Their minds are just blown by what's happening. And then, verse 47 the result of that is that they see them praising God enjoy, and they enjoy the favor of all the people. I think they're enjoying the favor of all the people because they're seeing these actions that they're doing, this living out of the transformed reality, it affects the society. It improves, it it lifts up the level of society all around them as they're caring for the needs all around them. This is classic of church history that the Christian church were the ones who were taking in babies who were abandoned. They were taking in the poor and oppressed. They were working with the sick when no one else would touch them. They were demonstrating a reality. And as they did that, we see this at the end. Daily, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So people see this, they're captivated in such a way that they're like, and I don't know what's happening there, but it's amazing. I need to find out more. I need, to, I need to see what's going on there. There's something stirring in their hearts. And now, as they hear the message, more and more people, it says, daily are being transformed. But it happened. It started with the demonstration. And I don't know, when we look at what sociologists and reporters today are wanting to talk about the decline of the church all around North America... I think we really need to be honest and ask ourselves if one of two things is true. Has the gospel lost its power to transform today? Is that what's happening? Or has Jesus' church simply ceased to demonstrate the transforming power? I don't know. Do people look at the church today and see nothing different, nothing engaging, nothing attractive that they would say, man, I need that in my life. We need that in our city. Is that that what people are seeing right now? And that's why we're not seeing more transformation today. I'm not suggesting that we should change the gospel message, accommodate ourselves so we can become more attractive to people. That's not it at all. We need to honestly ask ourselves, if we become so fearful of standing out, so fearful of looking different fearful of drawing attention to ourselves as we maybe want to even respectfully present an opposing viewpoint to the loud, very public viewpoints that are being shared all around us. We're so afraid of doing that that we don't demonstrate anything anymore. Have we become contented? Have we justified ourselves and think it's enough to just kind of toss the message over the wall of our church And then leaving the really hard work of actually entering into people's lives, entering into the mess, the people all around us, getting our hands dirty, getting out into the temple courts, if you will, of our world, and demonstrating this reality so they can see the message that's transformed us. Because that's where we start with. We say we've been transformed. But that's only one side of the problem. The other side is this. Because... If we just left it there, if we just stopped at man, are we just not demonstrating well enough? We could all walk out of here this morning, head off to our turkey dinners just feeling guilty. Just feeling like, man, if I just loved Jesus more, if I was more excited and grateful for my salvation, then demonstrating the gospel would be easy. And it isn't. It's not easy. He was talking about politics in particular, but I think something C.S. Lewis said absolutely is transferable when we're talking about how difficult it can be many times to live out and demonstrate the gospel in today's society. He wrote this, the practical problem of Christian politics is not that of drawing up schemes for a Christian society, but of living as innocently as we can with unbelieving fellow subjects. Under unbelieving rulers who will never be perfectly wise and good and will sometimes be very wicked and foolish. The reality is this is hard. And living in a society that does not know or submit to Christ, it's all well and good for me to say, just just get out there and start demonstrating. It's a very different thing when you have to actually do it. So I think we need to be able to hold some kind of attention in our lives. There needs to be a tension where on the one hand, we do. We seek to live our lives every day demonstrating the transformed reality of what's happened in us. We want our actions to show people that we've been transformed and, and pique their interest and joy and heart motivations to want to know, to say, man, if that's true, I want to know about that. We need to live our lives every day that way. But on the other hand, the other side is we need to recognize that we're never going to be able to do that perfectly. In fact, we're going to fail and face plant at that All the time. And I want to just free us this morning just to realize both those things are true. We need them both to be true because it's the reality that we live in today. And actually I want to free you even more to realize that the reality that in a really cool way our inability to perfectly demonstrate the gospel actually helps to demonstrate the gospel because it points people beyond ourselves. It says, hey, we're not the ones who do the transformation. Jesus is. Don't look to us to transform you. There's someone else who is daily transforming us. He's helping me to get better and better every day. But He's the one who's going to transform. Yeah. Yeah. So for us as a church family, as we seek to demonstrate the gospel to one another, and yes, in case I didn't make that clear, we don't, we don't just demonstrate the gospel to those who haven't heard it yet. We demonstrate it to each other as well. As we seek to demonstrate the gospel to one another, that means... Yes, we have a standard of behavior and interaction that we want to strive to all the time, to live amongst each other a certain way. And it's good and right to, to call each other out on that, to hold each other accountable, to say, hey, is that, is that attitude that I'm demonstrating right now, is that demonstrating the gospel? Is this conversation we're happening, that's happening here right now, is that demonstrating the gospel? That's a great question to ask ourselves often. And yet, it means we also need to have a great deal of grace for each other because we're not going to get it right. We are going to fail. And so we also need to extend the forgiveness to one another, the grace that we've received. And to do that, when we extend that grace and forgiveness, we're also demonstrating the reality of the gospel, because we too were forgiven when we didn't deserve it. When we failed again and again, forgiveness continues to be offered to us because of Jesus. To demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel. In a sense, actually, that's, that's way harder than the other part, isn't it? Declaring and demonstrating. You can declare something all day long that isn't actually true for you, but to demonstrate it, you, actually, you have to actually be able to demonstrate that it's true. You have to actually be transformed to demonstrate transformation. My yes. continued prayer for us as a church family is that by God's grace, we would seek daily to demonstrate the reality of transformation before everyone that God places in our path. I believe as we do that amongst each other, as we hold each other to a standard of gospel demonstration and offer grace and forgiveness to each other, we will see healing continue to take place in our church family. And we'll build a solid foundation out of which we can truly move forward, reach our community, and see that renewal take place. Because that's the other side. As we demonstrate it outside of these walls, my prayer as well is that as people see transformed lives lived out every day, they will be better prepared and seasoned and ready in order to hear our, de- our declared gospel of transformation. Amen. We'll never do that without God's help. So let's pray now together. Ask him to help us to accomplish this demonstration.